Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, I am joined by Mark Wallin author of It Didn't Start With You, and pioneer in intergenerational trauma healing. Oh yeah, so these memories of trauma, or these experiences of trauma, they're imprinted in our parents' and grandparents' sperm cells and egg cells. And then this information, um, it, it passes forward to us. So as a result, here we are, born with altered brains, that are preparing us biologically to cope with traumas that are similar to their traumas, the ones they experienced. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I am your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply. Listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions, and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences, as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. 
Your time to learn begins now. I'm so happy to welcome Mark Willen to the podcast today. His book, which is a bestseller, It Didn't Start With You, was referred to me by a client. This client, you know who you are. Thanks, girl. It's a great book. (laughs) It's deeply impacted my life and my practice. So I wanted to reach out and have Mark come on this show and teach us more about Uh, the work that he does and his language and how he understands inherited family trauma. I think there's two parts about his work, two, two main principles that I really am attracted to. The first is the understanding that we are not our traumas. And his work is really about what you think is your behavior, or rather what you think is your identity, or what you want or who you are, is often a response, a reflexive response that your body has to life based on your ancestors' trauma. Now that's really big because when we're able to not identify with our reflexes and see them as reflexes, we're able to have some space between them and some conscious awareness that they aren't us. And from that first step, we're able to actually get in there and start relating to them, start learning and inquiring into them, uncoupling them from our experience, and living this really beautiful experience as ours to live, rather than carrying the somatic memory of someone else's experience. The second piece of his work I really love is around language, the meaning that we give to things, the story That language, as he calls it, are the breadcrumbs into the history of stored and inherited family trauma and traumatic events. I'm not going to say much more because the interview is so perfect and he really explains everything beautifully. So I'm just going to leave you with the invitation to question the things that you think are you the phobias, the addictions, the patterns in relationships, the stories that suffocate you about yourself or your life or the people around you. I'm inviting you to identify those things and question them. Are those mine? Even feel that in your body. Those aren't mine, possibly. And notice, is there a little shift to something wake up and say, no, they're not mine, you're right, help. Notice what your body does with that and just feel it. And let's walk into this space with Mark from that state of awareness. I'm taking a quick break from the episode to remind you that my next six-week course begins on Sunday, October 10th. This is a live teaching course. I meet with you every Sunday and Wednesday in a group space on Zoom, and I teach you different principles of learning how to relate to your body so that you can release stress and trauma through listening to your body. Every session is recorded, and all the teaching sessions are yours to download and keep for life. You'll also walk away with a nice handful of audio exercises that will walk you through each step long after the course has ended. For information, 
visit my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and register for the intro webinar. It takes place on Sunday, September 12th at 10 a.m. Eastern, and I'll answer all your questions there. A replay will be sent out to all of you who cannot make it live, but do know registration goes live on Sunday, September 12th at 11 a.m. Eastern, right when the intro webinar closes. So if you're interested in taking this course, put that in your calendar, Sunday, September 12th, 11 a.m. Eastern. This course tends to sell out pretty quickly. I look forward to seeing you all there. Now let's go back to the episode. And I'm happy to uh, invite Mark Willen onto the show. Thank you for being here. Hey, Luis. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm so excited to talk to you about inherited family trauma because it is so... I've had my own personal experiences and in my practice and your book, from what I've read of it so far, it really speaks to it succinctly. So I, I just want to start by you teaching us what it is. What is inherited family trauma? Okay. So let's say that one of our parents or our grandparents have a significant trauma. They lost uh, their mother or their father when they were young, uh, or our mother or father maybe was sent to what they were sent away or placed in an orphanage, or maybe one of their siblings died tragically, or there's an event in utero. Um, an event like this, it, it can break the heart of the family but the reaction to the trauma doesn't necessarily stop with the people who experienced it. So the feelings and the sensations, specifically the stress response, specifically the way our, our genes express, this can pass forward to our children and our grandchildren, um, affecting them in a similar way, even though they didn't personally experience the trauma. Um, so that that's my quick definition. That's a um, great a great quick definition. Yeah. When you're saying that, my, my first question is, what does that look like? How does what I I think of Resma Menachem calls it like decontextualized trauma? Like, how does that manifest? You know, boy, it makes me want to tell a story. Um, uh, so so we don't get so technical quickly. Um, let me start with a story. It'll give a good context. Yeah, please. I, I recently worked with a, a 16-year-old boy with a, a rare neurological disorder. So when he was 10 years old, he began experiencing intense burning sensations on his skin. And the doctors, they, can't, they couldn't figure it out why this was happening. They couldn't find any root cause. And so when I spoke to his mom, um, I said, tell me about traumas in the family, specifically since he's your first boy, tell me about his dad, first of all. Did anything happen to the dad around the age of 10? And, you know, she lights up and says, well, well yeah, actually, when the father was 10, he, he was um, playing with matches and he accidentally burned the house down and he, you know, runs out of the house, but he realizes his mother and his brother um, are still in the fire. So he, the mother gets out, but the father's brother dies and the father never forgives himself. And because the trauma remained unhealed and unresolved, the man's son begins to express symptoms, um, burning sensations on his skin around the same age. 
and the family never made this connection. And then after working with the family, the boy's symptoms subsided. But this is an example of how um, what's left untalked about, what's left unresolved, what, what never heals can um, uh, almost float downstream in a way. And, and, you know, scientifically, um, when, when, we have a, when a trauma happens, um, it changes us. So literally, um, it causes a chemical reaction in our DNA, and, and this changes how our genes function and sometimes how our genes function for generations. So specifically, there's a chemical tag that happens after this event. And this tag will attach to the DNA and it has an intelligence. It'll say, because of this thing that just happened, um, it'll tell the cells, let's ignore these genes, which aren't gonna help us survive. And, and let's activate these genes. Um, so then the way our genes are affected change how we act or feel or what behaviors or symptoms will arise in us. For example, we can become sensitive or, or, or reactive to situations that are similar to an original trauma, even if that original trauma occurred in a past generation, so that we have a better chance of surviving it in this generation. Um, let, let me give another example, Louise. If our grandparents come from a war-torn country, let's say there's bullets flying, people being shot, bombs going off, uh, uniformed men lining people up in the square, people being taken away, our grandparents would develop um, changes, what we call epigenetic changes. Um, they would develop, let's say, uh, I'll put it in terms of uh, um, realistic terms. They develop a skill set, maybe sharper reflexes, quicker reaction times, um, reactions to this violence to help them survive and ultimately their descendants survive um, this, this violence, this trauma, this war. So the problem is, is you and I, the offspring, the grandchildren of these grandparents, we could inherit a stress response with the dials set to 10. And here we are waiting for this catastrophe, this war, this violence that never arrives. And we rarely make the link that our anxiety, our hypervigilance, our shutdown, our depression is connected to our parents and our grandparents. Louise, we just think we're wired this way. And that's what I keep running into. People just think, well, that's how I am. I'm wired this way. I hear loud noises. I, I'm in a crowd of people. I see policemen in uniforms and I have a freeze response. Yeah. So glad you said that. Um, so much you said. I mean, I just want to go on for hours. There, so the, the first piece that really hit me was the chemistry. I'm glad you broke that down because it's biochemical and it's, yeah. it's genetic and it's in the DNA and it's literally passed down through the chemistry of the body, which I think is important to comprehend. It's not a story being passed down. It's like a body memory being passed down. Oh, yeah. So these memories of trauma or these experiences of trauma, they're imprinted in our parents and grandparents' sperm cells and egg cells. 
And then this information, um, it, it passes forward to us. So as a result, here we are born with altered brains that are preparing us biologically to cope with traumas that are similar to their traumas, the ones they experienced. Mm. Molecular changes, chemical changes, biological changes. See, what's important about that for everyone listening is, is as you're diving into this work, and I've done some of the work from your book and, and kind of intuitively with somatic work before, as you start separating and uncoupling their experiences from your reactive experience, if, if, you know, if that's proper to say, it, you start to realize that, oh, this isn't who I am at all. This is something my body is doing from past information. And I, I'm wondering in your practice, how have you seen the shift from identifying with that as how you're wired to it's how my body reacts you know, intergenerationally? How does that change the person, their ego, their identity? What's that like with their healing? Oh my gosh, just that moment. You know, I'll be in a session with someone and someone will say, yeah, wait a minute, you mean this isn't mine? And, I, and I'll go, mm-hmm. Mm. And I'll say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. This anxiety isn't mine? I'll go, well, it didn't start with you. You know, clearly the name of the book, it didn't yeah, yeah. start um, which is how I got the name of the book. You know, I, for years, I just kept saying, yeah, it didn't start with you. It didn't start with you. And um, uh, so it, it's mind shattering. It's mind boggling that this way in which I think I'm wired as me, this is who I am, my identity, my concept of myself, that I'm just an anxious guy or, or I sink into a depression whenever such and such situation occurs, um, this isn't mine is that's the first that's really you know my sessions is maybe 40 minutes of education in the session to show how the um the, the confluence really of the trauma um um has shakes down in a way through the generations and how our grandmother's loss at 30 of her husband and she becomes a widow and she never marries again and then our parents unconsciously connected around that same age, 29, 30, begin to, they, they'd separate. And then here we are, Luis, at 30, looking at our partner and saying, yeah, you know, I don't feel anything anymore. Uh, yeah, this person doesn't do it for me anymore. Never making the connection that there's a, almost a wiring, almost what I like to call an ancestral alarm clock ringing around the age of 30 in the family to shut down to partnership. Mm. I, I wholeheartedly relate to that example. When I was 28, that started happening to me. And, and I, I remember thinking, you know, it was good. I kind of knew this work a little bit. I didn't know it to the extent I know now, but I kind of had an idea. And I was thinking, like, what, what is this about? And I noticed, oh, you know, that my 20s when my grandpa left Puerto Rico, he left his family. And then the 20s were my father completely disconnected from my mother and I. And then around the same age, 27, 28, I started feeling like my job is just to work, not to relate to my family. And luckily, it was a quick stint that, you know, I worked with it, but it was, it, it felt like an ancestral alarm clock. So I'd never had that in me. And then it just suddenly went off and it felt like that was the way to respond. I love how you're saying that. That's exactly right. Something suddenly goes off. You know, I, I talk about this. Um, you know, I, uh, it, look, 
it's not just ages, but ages are important. So, so when I'm taking a case, I'm asking, so how old were you when the symptom appeared? Or how, how old were you um, when this depression or this anxiety began to express? But there's not only ages, there are also events that are triggering events. For example, um, uh, when we get married can be a triggering event. When we go to have a child can be a triggering event. When we move to a new place can be a triggering event. So it's true. We can be born with an anxiety or a depression, like I talk, as I talked about earlier, and never separate it from the events of the previous generation. But we can also experience a fear or a symptom, Louise, that strikes suddenly or unexpectedly, not only when we reach a certain age, yes, that's true, but also when we hit one of these milestones or these events. Um, I, okay, let, let's use the first one. Um, we get married. So in the book, I talk about this woman. She loves her husband. She, she's, she loves her fiancé. Let's put it this way. They're engaged. She thinks he's the bomb. She can't wait to marry him. But as soon as she marries him, she just says, I don't get it. I love this guy, but I feel trapped. So when we looked at her family history back in Iraq or Lebanon, I forget which country, but both grandmothers were given away as child brides at nine and 12 to these much older men, 30 years older. And so they lived these loveless, trapped marriages to these old guys that they never really connected with because there was such an age difference. And, and it was interesting. So as soon as she gets married, the trigger is I'm trapped. And, and when you looked at her sisters, it was so cool. The one sister marries a much older guy, 30 years older, like the grandmothers. And the other sister refused to go into a relationship at all lest she be trapped. So all three sisters carried a piece of the same trauma, but it all expressed differently. Another trigger is moving to a new place. Um, and, and these are some of the signs of inherited family trauma. People ask me, well, what are the signs? And, you know, um, these triggering events. For example, we move. Even if we move across town, Louise, and suddenly we become depressed like our ancestors that were either persecuted, forced out of their homeland, had to leave their homeland because people were dying of starvation or famine, or when they left, kids died on the trail, on, on, on the move. You know, they lost babies um, by moving. They moved to an impoverished place. In other words, some triggering event gets linked into this idea of moving. Another one is we get rejected by our partner. And we may have only been with this partner for two months, but we go, oh, I can't live without this person. I can't live without this person. And really what it's doing us is taking us back to a much earlier grief um, that feels insurmountable. Uh, for example, a break in the attachment with our mom. So we have this break and we do well until we get left. And then we remember the abandonment that happened to us as a baby that we don't cognitively remember, we somatically remember it. So there's like these um, ancestral alarm clocks. Another one is having a child that start ringing. Um, so what you just said there was important to me. You said we don't cognitively remember it. It's a somatic memory or a somatic response. Oh yeah, let me develop that one. Um, it's because 
you know, the hippocampus, which helps us form memories, doesn't really begin to operate fully or, or cogently until we're about two or three when it makes its connections to the prefrontal cortex. So before age two or three, we have all these memories that are there, but they we, we can't for memories of them, but they're somatic memories. That's because many variables really, but the neural tube and the neural groove, that which will become our nervous system is already embedded in the fetus after 20 days. The heart is embedded in the fetus after 20 days. So memory is imprinted, just not cognitive memory. So then, how important is it for context? Like if I, th- I, I, my mind always goes to, um, I think of like tribal setups where the stories of each elder are told as the families are growing up. So everyone kind of knows like, oh, you jump at snakes because grandpa was this great snake fighter. So there's like context for why you jump at snakes. But I, I imagine, and maybe it's everywhere, but I'm speaking as an American, being so disconnected from the motherland and like the stories and the ancestors, we don't have the oral tradition of what each person went through. So how much does that have to do with this being stuck in the body? Well, um, it doesn't actually, though it's important. So the answer is kind of twofold. Um, Even if you don't know the story and you don't have access to the story, the the molecular chemical reactivity still fires off. I mean, it still happens. But in the healing process, I think context is important. I think story is important. You know, from my book, I think connecting to our parents, grandparents, and ancestry is important. I think that, you know, in the book, I uh, teach people how to be detectives of something I call trauma language. And then I help people locate that trauma language to in the event in the second part of the book. And then the third part of the event, um, third part of the book, I teach people how to have ritual experience, um, a positive experience that can heal the brain. So I'm a big believer in the context. It's important to know um, in our healing, like, oh, that's why every time I move, I get depressed because my ancestors were, uh, uh, in the story, I tell this, uh, this story of a guy who couldn't even go to a restaurant. He couldn't go to what he called a new place or he'd pass out. And what was so fascinating, I said, tell me about this, uh, go into, uh, he said, I can't, my, I'm in a prison, he said, with my family. They, they want to go to restaurants. They want to go to the village, the town next door and look at the sights. And I can't do it because whenever I go to a new place, I pass out. I get faint. I get massive anxiety. Well, when you looked in his family history, 74 of his family members perished in the Holocaust. They were literally taken to a new place where they were killed, murdered. So you see, um, once he had the story, the context, he could go to the new place and parse out what was his anxiety response and what didn't belong to him, which was this uh, feeling that he would die. So I think that's what that's where I was trying to go with my question was when someone has the context, is that a major part of healing this inherited trauma? 
because you're, if you're uncoupling the two, I feel like that's one part, but then how do you fully move through that? So it isn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm glad you're, you're breaking it down like that. So for me, it's a lovely part to have the context. Do we need it? No, not really. We can just do the inner work. We, we cannot even know because sometimes someone's adopted someone's parents don't give them the context. They think that if I just stay quiet, I protect, I immunize my kids from the trauma, which isn't true. The trauma is still tracking and coursing through, uh, you know, the DNA expression. Um, so I, where it is lovely and valuable to have the context, it's actually not really needed. What is needed is the practice, the practice of change, healing our brain, changing our brain, of, of practicing, having new experiences, and then practicing um, being in the feelings and the sensations of the new positive experience until that becomes um, integrated in the body. So when people work with me, you know, often what I say is, look, today we're going to work with fragmentations, uh, you know, ways in which we fragmented when we were young, when we were in utero, or through the family history, generationally, where these fragmentations exist. And we're going to integrate what's been fragmented. So that's, for me, the context of how this, how we heal and how, how I work. I love that. That's very in line with how, what I believe in, what I've, what I practice and what I've experienced, because I'm, I'm thinking of it from the, the perspective of having the context. Um, and I hear that you don't have to, which is really a relief for people listening who are adopted or who parent, whose parents are dead or don't have a lot of family. It's really good to know you don't have to know the stories, but to know, okay, right now, when I go to a new place, I feel like I'm in a prison. I feel like I'm in prison. I'm in a prison versus where am I really? just like you said, parsing out, and I just call that uncoupling, that uncoupling. feeling of a prison from the reality it's a restaurant and like sensationally feeling the restaurant. Is that yeah. essentially what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. If you have the context, if you have the context, you can uncouple from their reality and the reality. Right. And if you don't have the context, do you, you work still, with... You can still do... Okay. Do you work so, with that core concept? I do. Tell us about that. Okay, so what I, I love how you're leading me. This is good. So when somebody comes to work with me, I gather what I call their trauma language, their core language. And it's important uh, because this language, even if we're adopted, even if we're parents are passed away, even if they don't want to tell us, the trauma language still, in other words, the trauma symptoms, the trauma experience is still flowing through us. So I've discovered that when a trauma happens, um, not only does it create this chemical change in the DNA, that's true, but it also leaves clues behind in the form of emotionally charged words and sentences that they form a breadcrumb trail, Louise. You know, and if we learn to follow this breadcrumb trail, it's like finding the missing pieces of the puzzle which allow the whole, it allows the whole picture to come into to view and can finally give us a context for why we feel the way we feel. Now, this trauma language is either verbal or nonverbal, which I'll get into. But let, let's talk about the verbal piece of it. Um, as you and I know from trauma theory, when a traumatic event happens, 
um, significant information bypasses the frontal lobes. So the experience of exactly what happened in that trauma can't be named or ordered through words because our language centers are compromised. And then without language, our experiences, the experience of the trauma, they're stored as fragments of memory, fragments of body sensations, fragments of images, things we kind of remember, um, uh, fragments of language, both verbal and nonverbal, fragments of emotions. It's like the mind, it, it disperses and essential elements get, get separated. It's like we lose the story, Louise, and we never complete the healing. Yet what I've discovered is these pieces aren't lost. They've simply been rerouted and can resurface in this verbal and nonverbal trauma language. When it's verbal, we'll say something like, I'll hurt a child. I'll do something terrible. Um, I won't be able to save my family members. You know, we start to say these pieces of trauma language. When it's nonverbal, we're looking for the physical and emotional symptoms that show up after some type of unsettling event. Uh, the fears that strike suddenly that I talked about before, the anxieties that strike suddenly when we reach a particular age or you know, the same age that something traumatic happens in the family history, or it's after this event, our girlfriend leaves us, our uh, wife, husband, partner, um, someone uh, cheats on us, and, or, or they don't even call. And all of a sudden, we're in a trauma response. So we look for the depression, the destructive behaviors, the self-sabotaging behaviors that begin to arise after a situation that's similar to a trauma in our family history, though we don't know it at the time. Um, this nonverbal trauma language, it can be also mirrored in our relationship struggles, you know, who we choose, how we let ourselves be treated, how we treat others. It also is mirrored, this nonverbal language, uh, in the ways we deal with money, uh, success, and all forms of breadcrumb trail. Um, oh boy, let me give an example. Okay, okay, I worked with this woman recently um, who had cancer. And, she, and so we're talking about the cancer. I go, tell me what was going on when the cancer uh, started uh, to arise. And she said, oh, my dog died. I said, tell me about your dog. And she said, I was with him for 16 years. He was everything to me. So I write this down because I hear something in it, which is what you hear too as a trauma therapist. What was it? Who, who was with somebody 16 years? So that's her, her verbal trauma language. I was with him for 16 years. He was everything to me. Then when we look at her family history, her mother's favorite brother was killed in a car accident when the mother was 16. And so her favorite brother was everything to her. And then you, I looked at her father's side, and her father was 16 when he, he lost his father, who died suddenly of a massive stroke. And she's an only child, and she carries from both sides of the family. So the trauma of something horrific, losing somebody <coughs> who was everything to them after 16 years, this is the nonverbal part of it, having health issues that arise after 16 years. That's the non-verbal language speaking to us, Luis. I just have to share, um, you know, after reading your book and I recently went to visit my parents who live in Pennsylvania 
Um, my grandfather had recently died. Uh, it was a, a beautiful death. He was 92. It was very peaceful. Um, you know, as beautiful as death can be for some. Uh, but what was interesting to me was I was thinking about your trauma language. And I was thinking of, I have this sugar addiction, right, that I've had like my whole life. And I was thinking, it goes on and off. And I was thinking, what what's the feeling I have when I'm not eating it? Like, what's what's the what's the language? What's the story? And it kept coming up, like, I can't get through this day without it. I can't survive without it. And then when I went to visit my family, it hit me. My grandfather grew up on a sugarcane plantation in Puerto Rico. Oh and they were so poor, all they ate was sugarcane sometimes. Oh, wow. Right? And so I'm getting chills, as I'm telling you, because it was so profound in me to realize, oh, that's where this is. That's what is attached. My father's the same way. It so goes from my grandfather to my father to me. And since discovering that and then doing what we're talking about, like the restaurant example uh, of, well, sensationally, what's it like in my body when I eat lunch and I don't have sugar? Like, oh, it feels actually really good. Like I am going to survive without it. I haven't had any interest in it. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I just great. had to share that because it was so powerful. No, no, I'm glad you did. You know, I, and, and, you know, it makes me want, want to talk more, more about the healing. Is that okay if we, if I talk yeah. about that, because it's, Absolutely. you know, the, the context, having the story, recognizing that that was then, this is now, and feel that in our body, that's part of it. And then, as we know from being somatic therapists, we've got to have these positive experiences that change our brain. And then practices I was talking about earlier, the new feelings and the new sensations um, associated with these new positive experiences because when we do this we're actually changing our brain we're improving we're, we're changing our brain in a different way we're, we're creating new neural pathways um, that's true but we're also stimulating the release of feel-good neurotransmitters when we practice this stuff like um, serotonin dopamine gaba or, or we're releasing feel-good hormones in our body like estrogen oxytocin and not only that we're even changing the way our genes express literally the the very genes involved in the body's stress response can begin to function in in an improved way we we literally can change the way the dna expresses so when i say having positive experiences uh i'm talking about as i teach in the book receiving uh comfort or support where there was none or practicing um, being in a feeling of compassion um, where for ourselves, for our parents, for our grandparents, where there was none. Just like you telling that story um, had all this compassion for your grandpa and your dad, um, be starving and, uh, and only having sugar to eat. We can also practice, um, uh, have a gratitude practice because when we express gratitude we're we're literally feeding the prefrontal cortex um or we can have a generosity practice each day doing something uh for someone or a loving kindness practice or practicing mindfulness literally louise anything that allows us to feel strength peace and joy inside and allows us to have curiosity these types of experiences feed the prefrontal cortex and can help us reframe that stress response that we either inherited or got re-engineered when we were infants or in the womb 
So it has a chance, that stress response has a chance to down-regulate. That's the key. We want to down-regulate the trauma brain, the limbic system. The idea is to pull uh, traction away from the limbic system, our overactive amygdala that's twice its normal size, that's always firing, stay safe, stay safe, get tight, leave the body, freeze, fight, you know. And, and we want to bring energy out of that and bring energy into a different part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, where we can integrate these new experiences and our brains can change. We know from mindfulness studies, and I list them in my book, that practicing mindfulness actually shrinks the, prefrontal, shrinks the amygdala and thickens the prefrontal cortex. It's just so beautiful. Just hearing it, it feels so settling. You know, I, and when you're talking about it, I'm just thinking, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the time and I'm just thinking, guess what I'm, what I'm, what I'm wondering is people hearing about this that are thinking, um, you know, I, I need this work. I want to do this work. Where can people find this language, this kind of work? Like how do they get in touch with you or your, okay. your, your work? What does that look um, like? Yeah, yeah. I, I really do believe the, I wrote the book as a, um, not everybody goes to a therapist or believes that, uh, I, wrote, I wrote the book for two reasons. One, to give therapists, clinicians, a manual to work with people. So people like you, um, who've read the book and can apply this work, that's awesome. People can read the book even without a therapist, do the practices in there and get to the other side as well. Um, I've seen that numerous, countless times where people have made connections through reading the book, done the practices in the book, and have moved outside of their trauma pattern. The way people can get to me, and, and also for clinicians, I have a training, uh, a streamable training that I just finished on my website that is profound. I I love it. I love what happened in this training, and I'm glad we recorded it. So it's on my website, too. It's markwolin.com. And if you go to my website, uh, all the resources are there. Uh, for those of you who are very technically um, interested in uh, the science, go to my Facebook page, Mark Willen, Facebook slash Mark Willen, and you'll see all the new studies that have come out every week and what they're finding um, it's, it's literally mind boggling what we now know about generational trauma. It's just, it's so important. And when I think of collective trauma and I think of cultural trauma, this is really the bridge where there's a, I don't even know if it's a bridge. It's like, this is the language that's been missing because for people to move away from this is how I am into this is how I'm responding to something right. is huge, isn't it? Right. And your, your work is really outlining that and, and teaching us how to do that, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I have nothing else. I mean, I have so much else to say, but uh, <laughs> I think it's like, it's, it's a good place to stop there because yeah. I think the book is super important and anyone listening, the book is so easy and enjoyable to read. It's not a lot of clinicians and intelligent people and professors and scientists, they write books that are so difficult to get through. Your book isn't overwhelming. It really gets soaked in very easily. So um, I, I highly recommend it. 
Yeah, thank, thank you, you so you much. Know, I, so, you know, I wrote that book as a manual. That's how it started. I said, <laughs> I've, I've got to teach clinicians how to break this down. But I also wrote it as an airport book for the person who doesn't know anything. So I did these two things and somehow it worked. But thank, <laughs> it definitely thank works. you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it, Louise. Oh, gosh, it is my honor. Thanks for coming. Yeah. For more information on Mark's work, you can visit markwollin.com. That's Mark, W-O-L-Y-N-N.com. When you go there, you'll see trainings, workshops, private sessions, his book. Everything you need is there. I strongly recommend his book. It was designed, as he says, uh, as a manual for clinicians, which means it's a manual for anyone that has a body. You don't have to be a therapist to do this work. This work, in a way, is our birthright. It's accessing these inner stories and these inner wisdoms and these inner traumas so that we can be free of the traumas and move with the wisdom and safety that we get from doing this work. Thank you so much for listening today. Take good care. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My question for you is, where do you feel the episode? Take a breath and just notice, what's your body doing right now? Sit with it. Let it speak to you. And let whatever comes up, come up. And your only job is to listen. For all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. For more information on my work, including my online courses and healing circles, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook, where I share weekly philosophies and resources to help you release stress and trauma from your body so that you can live a happier life. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.